Nevin. Yes! Chelsea equalise after 74 minutes. So the anniversary is marked with a goal for the home side. And Pat Nevin, a great favourite here, sized up the situation on that free kick and chipped that with some pace past Ray Clemens. Oh, it's in the bar! Genie shots in the post! Nevin's got it in the net! Oh, good ball by Ulrich. Nevin's away. Chips the keeper. What a goal! <laughs> Even the referees applauding that. Today's Ramble Meets calls his autobiography the accidental footballer. He didn't set out to be a pro, but ended up playing with great distinction for Chelsea, Everton, Scotland, Tranmere, and Clyde before being the Players Union chairman and running Motherwell as chief executive. But those facts don't tell half his story. Well read, passionate about music, a friend of the legendary DJ John Peel, seeing a band in concert was as important as beating the fullback at Stamford Bridge. His mantra when playing would be, a footballer is what I do, not what I am. He stands up against injustice, is now a pundit, a journalist and a DJ, and I'm lucky enough to have worked with him a great deal. Welcome, Pat Nevin. It's great to be here, Mark. Thanks very much for that intro. Um, I don't know what to say about that other than... Well, I think, I think I, I love the title of your book and anybody reading the first few pages will understand why it's called that and your approach to football, which was completely different, if I may say, to the average football-mad, talented kid in that when Celtic said they weren't going to sign you and you were the star player in the Celtic Boys Club. You smiled. You didn't cry. And that sets the tone, I think, for your book and probably for your football life, doesn't it, to Pat? Be to be fair, I smiled and probably laughed a little yeah. as well because I really didn't think I wanted to... Well, I knew I didn't want to be a footballer full-time. I just so loved the actual playing. But that's all that was important to me. And it's just that pure joy and love of actually playing football. And I had a thing in my mind. I was kind of quite old when I was young, if you know what I mean. I got much less earnest as I got older <laughs> and a lot later as I got older. And the thing I could have understood right from the start is I don't want to ruin the kind of love I've got of this. And being making your job can sometimes do that. And anyway, I was studying, I was doing a degree and also I'd done the math, as it were, and uh, what percentage of players actually made it. So I thought, no, nah, it's okay. I'll just play for fun with my mates. And I was perfectly, perfectly happy doing that. Um, so the plan... I mean, I mean, in simple terms, in a very short phrase, I tried really hard not to be a footballer and failed. <laughs> <laughs> but also in those days, Pat, you wouldn't have earned particularly much more money being a footballer than being a professional, whether you'd been, I don't know, a teacher or a journalist or something. Um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly my, at Clyde when I was playing, I eventually got dragged into Clyde. <laughs> dragged into Clyde. That's about harsh. <laughs> <laughs> but I was doing part-time with Clyde. They eventually spotted me a few months later and uh, you know I was getting 30 quid a week but we got some bonuses and we won the league that year um, so that was great for a student you know I had my grant in those days um, so I had enough to buy records and go to gigs and take my girlfriend out to restaurants nothing else was particularly important to me um, so I had all the things I needed but even then going down to Chelsea I mean the ridiculousness of it I was player of the year at Chelsea and I was on 180 quid a week and the rent in the flat was a hundred quid and you pay tax. Yep. I was, 
I was skint. I think <laughs> you said so you were left with 20 quid a week, weren't you, after everything? Yeah, after everything. And of course, that's, well, I have to get food with that and yeah. things, you know, and uh, or more important things like records um, than food. Uh, but of course, I got in the team quite quickly. And then you get things like, you know, win bonuses. Uh, and that made life bearable that first season. So I got a lot of Chelsea fans come up to me and they've been really kind about the book. I mean, not many have got hold of it, obviously. Um, but they've said, look, you can't wait to hear about that first season, the second season. It was really magical. And I'm thinking, yeah, and I was really hungry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get there, so the, the one thing that you said about not signing for Celtic, which worried you a bit, was your dad's reaction because he loved Celtic and you were a Celtic family and he had spent so much time basically training you, hadn't he, coaching you? Yeah, had, and he'd been a boxer in his time um, in the Navy and he actually coached um, boys clubs as well and coached all the family um, just for the love of it now he didn't at any point say to any of us he would like us to be a professional he just loved the joy of fitness and health and being out in the open air it was that kind of old school kind of attitude okay in the back of his mind he'd love me to have played with Celtic and when I signed for Celtic Boys Club and then signed a schoolboy form for Celtic that was the obvious path and when I was getting player of the year at the boys club it seemed a very obvious pass. I mean, the guys before me, you think of the other guys that got that honour. It was Charlie Nicholas. It was Roy Aitken. It was Tommy Burns. It was Paul McStay. It was, they all went straight on yeah. to play for Celtic. But I didn't. I was the one that got hoofed. <laughs> so it was a strange one. So I did. I went home and told my dad. And it's kind of poignant, really. And it's a long time to remember back. But I know he would have been disappointed. But he, he hid it. You know, and we were like that in those days, weren't we? You know, you mm. didn't show your emotions that much. And I said, I've uh, been let go. And he said, oh, right, okay. And I, I didn't say any more. And just walked out. Um, but he had told my family, you know, younger, when I was even younger than that, he thought I'd play for Scotland one day. And uh, he was right about that. He was. <laughs> if he's going to say that to me then, I'd say, what an idiot. What are you talking about, Dad? You haven't got a clue. <laughs> I have to say, Pat, I, I'm maybe it's because I'm getting older, I'm so fascinated about people's upbringing because it clearly dictates so much the way they are, to lesser or a greater extent. You, you're a Celtic family, so you're a Catholic family. I think that's worth saying for those abroad who don't necessarily get the, the Celtic-Catholic-Rangers-Protestant divide. But you absolutely were not a family who indulged in sectarian singing. Oh, That was really? absolutely frowned on, which has come back later in life to, to very much dilute your love of Celtic, hasn't it, that that happens so much? It's interesting to talk about that because my whole family are still Celtic fans, but um, amazing for someone who was so passionately a Celtic fan and brought up with that kind of Catholic, kind of, but we weren't massively politically, or, uh, you know, or certainly our Catholicism wasn't worn as a badge. And if we, at any point, suggested anybody else was other, was lesser than us, my dad and my mum would have been right down on top of us. It wasn't about being better. You were just comfortable in yourselves. And the idea of any bigotry from us would have been absolutely frowned upon by my mum and dad. And it wasn't always said. It was just implied. Always implied that you didn't behave that way. So we kind of didn't feel that way. And it's an odd thing. You know, you've, you've surrounded by it. I mean, I go to school. I go to the Catholic school. And there's lots of lads singing, you know, IRA songs, all that sort of stuff. And I'm thinking... What's that all about? <laughs> you know, and we, we don't get it. And it's that strange thing of being inside your family that's got one ethic and then the outside group that's got another. Now, to be honest, I didn't spend a lot of time. I just didn't like the idea of sectarianism at football ground. If I go to watching my football, I don't care if it's Celtic Rangers, Arsenal Spurs, Chelsea, don't care. It's like going to the cinema, I want to enjoy it. I want to be entertained. I really don't want to hear 
all the political singing. And uh, when it was made clear to me much later in life that, you know, I was out of step and it was made clear to me by a number of people um, that were, you know, in the Celtic supporters things, um, I said, well, if I'm out of step, I better go and find somewhere else yeah. to go and watch my football. And being someone who's uh, Scottish, I didn't want to buy a new scarf, so I chose a better name. <laughs> <laughs> Same colours. But that that that's very typical of you. I mean, as a positive way, Pat, that you're very sure of what you are and you're very sure of what you believe in as well. Mm. And no one was going to tell you otherwise just to fall into line with I wouldn't people. fall into line, absolutely. Yeah. But I'll listen. I mean, yes. absolutely. You will yeah. listen and you will take on arguments. And I have to say, I, I enjoy the discussion. Um, one of the things that I don't currently enjoy and I may be considered old for not thinking this I don't like cancel culture because I like debate and I like the idea that I have different attitudes for, for lots of people but I want to I might not agree with you but I'm interested to see how you came to that position why you think that way and maybe even a little bit I might try and talk you out of it <laughs> if I disagree but yeah. I can say it with a smile and I can there's you know there's lots of people and you probably come across in the book there are others who I will openly talk to in the book that others maybe wouldn't um, so that's still the case I mean having said that not everyone's like that and uh, you just need to open my Twitter and you'll find there's plenty well, that disagree <laughs> well we'll get to those other instances how do the rest of your family regard it today then that you know they still support Celtic and you don't um, that's Pat it's interesting yeah in a good way that's Pat funnily enough my older brother Tommy he wrote me a, a text a while back and it was just out, apropos nothing out of nowhere he said proud of you for standing up for what you believe in and it was a lovely moment because we all were too busy joshing and joking with each yeah. other. There's nothing serious. And it was a really nice moment. Um, and it's they've kind of smile at me and laughing. But it's also, if you're a Spurs and an Arsenal fan, you don't necessarily hate each other. You wind each other up and have a laugh. Well, my family will wind me up. Yeah. And as a Hibs fan, it's not easy. No. Been Celtic for 10 years, 9 years there. And it, the other thing to underline, I have to be honest about it, and it doesn't sit well with a lot of people, I don't hate Celtic. You know, if Hibs aren't winning, the next team I want to win up there is Celtic. Sure. So yeah. you don't you don't lose a love like that. But if I was going to take my kids and particularly my son to a game, it was decided Hibs. And he is now a complete fanatic, an absolute fanatic of the Hibies. And uh, we'd well, be very and, excited. They're favourites for the cup. And they don't win the cup very often, Hibs, as we know. What, once in a century? Absolutely. Um, as a, can I tell you a wee off-piste story about yeah. that just for a moment? Um, this whole hour's going to be off-piste, oh, don't worry about it. Excellent. Many years later, um, when I was taking my son and I wanted to choose a team, and I knew, I kind of knew it was going to be Hibs anyway, because I had a Hibs strip as a kid and we were li living in the East Coast now. Um, but we went and, uh, and it's a, it's a, it annoys a lot of people, but we sat down and he wanted to go an hour early to get the atmosphere in his first game. And I took him, sat him down. And within 10 minutes, there was four guys around me and I having this discussion about the relative merits of Iggy Pop, Lou Reed and David Bowie <laughs> and the linking. And I, I feel at home. Yeah. I've come, and I felt comfortable. <laughs> and the, 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 it came to a real um, extreme situation where I was working for BBC Scotland one day and I also worked for Chelsea TV at the time. And I had to make a choice. I had to either go and watch and, and cover the Hibs Scottish Cup final hadn't won it for over 100 years against Hearts or else cover that same day Chelsea versus Bayern Munich in the Champions League final and what a horrible oh, choice to make yeah. and well I kept it real and I I, I went to the Hibies game um, and covered that and uh, we could be 5-1 by Hearts yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And it was one of the most horrid, horrid, you know, things anything. And then I had to do the highlights afterwards and I'm the kind of main pundit there. And all the Hearts fans are laughing their head off at me. And there's this big thing going, you do a 5-1 if you meet any hibby if you're a Hearts fan. Okay, yeah. So I still get that you to this day. Today. And I could have been over there in yeah. Munich. I was, I was in Munich. You didn't want to hear that. <laughs> there's a couple more things I want to mention about Glasgow, if I could. Politics is as important as football in Glasgow, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Were you a, were you a fa- I mean, there were six of you, so you're a big family. Mm. And I think that does probably shape your character as well. Of course it does. You know, yeah. when you're, when you're um, you know, when you're such a big... Sorry, you're six kids, mm. your family yeah, of eight. Six, yeah, so um, w- was politics something you talked around the, the dinner table? Uh, oddly a small p, politics. Um, because basically it was just accepted that you voted Labour. Yeah. <laughs> so that was it, you know, you would come from the east end of Glasgow, it's a rough part of Glasgow. There's no, in those days there was no other option, really. Um, but it would be specific political things that were happening and how strong you would be on it. Um, but we were kind of socialist family and a what socialist and a you are a social caring human being. That was more important than the, the banging the drum and you know talking Marxism and Leninism. You know, we, we read all that stuff anyway. You did all that, you know. And I went to a school where. Hey, my school didn't go to, you know, Brighton for the weekend. We went to Moscow. That's what we did. <laughs> when the Iron Curtain was up, yeah. that's the kind of school I went to. And it was the way it was in the East End of Glasgow. There was politics there, but I would see other parts of my family, like, you know, cousins were very radical. So we knew the whole arguments, but I think we were kind of slightly softer version of, look, the social element is take care of your fellow man or woman. And that's it. You know, as much as anything else. And we kind of suffered a bit because, you know, the sectarianism and, you know, the, the Catholics were held down at the time in Scotland. I, I'd probably seen some of the last of that, or my dad certainly did. I was about to ask you that. You, you definitely imply in your book that your dad worked for British Royal, didn't he? Did, he? Yeah. That he didn't get the promotions he deserved because of his Catholicism. Oh, 100%. I mean, that's not that's not a suggestion. That's an absolute definite. I mean, he'd worked in there for so many years, 40-odd years. And he was an incredibly hard worker, a really dedicated worker. And you can ingrain that in us all. It doesn't matter what you do, you do it to the best of your ability. I think that would really surprise people to hear that happened in the 1980s. They might have expected mm-hmm. it in Belfast, but not in uh, but not in Glasgow. No, if you live in Glasgow, you wouldn't be surprised. No, no, sure. Because <laughs> it, it happened yeah. in the shipyards in Glasgow as well, to some degree. And it certainly, in, in certain factories and large factories, it would have been the case. Uh, to be In the end, I think they respected my dad. And to the level of, you know, they would give him extra overtime, which my dad needed and wanted for the family. And incredibly hard working. But it was a great moment. I can't even remember if I put it in the book or not. Uh, he told me this years later. And early on in his time there, just to show him because he was the wrong side of the tracks. That's quite a good analogy for Bryce Rail. Yeah. <laughs> they told him that there's a big load of coal over there and it was tons of the stuff. We need that shoveled. Here's a shovel. Go and, go and shovel that part. And they, they thought they were winding him up. He was a boxer. He thought it was training. He was like, yeah. yes, I'll have a yeah. look at that. And it powered him up. So it just, I think we're quite a similar that we just take the absolute best you can out of a situation. And the best way you can possibly change people is showing them the right way to behave or what you feel the right way to behave. Um, it may take a wee bit longer, but it's just the family ethic. Um, my final question about Celtic concerns mm-hmm. the boys club and the, mm-hmm. the paedophile scandals. I suppose reading your book, you just have to regard yourself as fortunate that for whatever reason, yeah. luckily never came across your door. As and it's it complicated to to think why. Because one of the difficult things is we are talking about a lot of historical abuse cases and it's it's not just football. It's, it's all the way through society. It's churches, it's organisations, everything. And 
we tend to judge it by what we know today, but it wasn't like that then because there was huge ignorance, certainly from the kids who had no idea what was going on. It would be straight over the top of their heads. Some of the adults as well. And certainly in organisations and government, they, they either didn't know or more worryingly were deliberately ignorant. And that would be my biggest concern because I certainly feel there would be some people that either absolutely knew or strongly suspected. And those are the people that, well, I say, should hang their head in shame, but everybody knows that. And it's whether they are called to account or whether they should actually just get their hands up now and say, and apologise for allowing it to happen. And whether it be from their, you know, ignorance, whether it be from their naivety, you know, you will get, you'll get panned for it, but own up to it and accept it. Uh, I, I very strongly say, it's, it's an important thing to say in the book, and I say to everyone, uh, one or two people said, well, could you not have spoken? I was 13, yeah, yeah. as was everybody around me. So you're not aiming that at me. I'm not letting you aim that at those other kids and shoveling any blame onto them. There's no way they should have been the ones, and specifically the ones who suffer from it. I was fortunate. My dad used to come down to just about every training session and certainly came to every game. So whether I would have been in danger or not, it, a, it wouldn't have happened and B, if it did, the guy would have been absolutely smart <laughs> battered yeah. with my dad. As you said, Pat, Pat Senior was a boxer. Yeah. Um, and, and luckily, we, we, we live in a society today where we hope that mm-hmm. we have taught kids enough to say something's going on, this is wrong. You know, and, we're talking about the 1960s, 70s and 80s, a completely different it's, era. It's, it's, it's a different era and that's why I have to be honest about it. Maybe the one, the, the, the trickiest parts of the book is to, trying to explain Oh, and by the way, in the midst of all this, I was having a ball, as were many of us, and we were learning great stuff, and it was a well-organised, you know, organisation, as it were. And, you know, to come out of it and think, well, oh, that's terribly negative, and vast parts of it are, if you were one of the sufferers. For a lot of the rest of them, they came through it. You know, Moisey, myself, Charlie, you know, we got to the end of it, and we just, A, we got lucky, but we got lucky in a number of ways, because we learnt a lot about football on the way out. You mentioned Charlie Nicholas and I hadn't realised this actually that uh, you you came to Chelsea almost under the cloak of Charlie yeah. Nicholas going to Arsenal the same summer I remember it extremely well summer of 1983 and you thought actually that was quite useful I can go to Chelsea and, yeah. and you know all the focus is on another Scott. Going to Chelsea was a great move for you for your football mm. but did you feel at the time this is a great move for me musically as well because now uh, I'm going to London. I think the latter was more important than the former. <laughs> <laughs> I remember thinking of going down in the train, you know, because you, yeah. you didn't fly down. You went down the train with two big bags uh, to, to move your life because uh, I was a student and I'd taken a year sabbatical off the final year of the degree to go down and have a two-year stint at Chelsea. They tried to buy me for a year and I knocked them back completely, yeah. which is kind of surprising when kids would go, really? You, you knocked? Yes, I did, because I wanted to finish the degree. But... I went down and I can remember thinking on the way down, my head wasn't thinking, hey, I might score a diving header at Stamford Bridge against Arsenal. You know, that wasn't the first thing in my head, which fortunately I did do the next year. But my head was in, I'll be able to see them, they're playing in, you know, September. This next band are playing in October. I might meet XXYZ and you mentioned Peely earlier on. I might meet the godlike John Peel. And kind of everything happened, everything that I would have wanted to happen. Um, but I just wanted to see another city. I was hooked on travelling by then. And I just wanted to see another part of life. And I've always had a, a wanderlust to find out about not just places, but peoples and different attitudes to life. And London, I have to say, 
I came to London and I was absolutely in love with the place immediately and have never stopped being in love with the place. I mean, you refused to go to Diggs. I thought that was really brave. So no. I'm not going into Diggs. Put me in a hotel. I'll find somewhere to live, which you did. And you shared a flat with the editor of the NME, which the New Musical Express, which was which was the absolute Bible of the time, yeah. wasn't it? You know, pre, pre-internet and all that. This yeah. is the sort of thing. Like Shoot. If you like music, yeah. you bought that NME. If you like football, you bought mm-hmm. Shoot. That, that was yeah, it. it was quite serious-minded, NME. Yeah. Uh, but you, if you were into music and you wanted to find more stuff, it was tough because there was only a very limited amount of radio stations. There was some of the offshore ones. There was Peely, obviously. Yeah. Um, maybe Kid Jensen coming along later. But a lot of the daytime stuff wouldn't have been stuff that I'd have had a great interest in. It's not bad. It just it didn't really touch me, really. So I mean, nowadays you can go on online and find whatever you yeah. like, wherever you like. But I couldn't do that then. So uh, it was, you read the NME and you think, well, that band used to be in that band and they quite like them and you piece it together and sometimes you'd go and buy albums that you'd never heard the band or maybe you'd heard one track on the John Peel show or I hear they're quite good, I go and see them live. I have to say that final bit, I've not lost that yet. I'll still go so and see So a bit of a band. punt, yeah, just literally mm. heard one track, you think, yeah. let's go and see if... I hammed ham- all the way through my... In the last one I did, uh, I heard one track in Peely and two nights later I was in the concert which was 120 miles away from where I live. And within a week, they were my favourite band. Oh, who are they? And Camera Obscura. And, uh, you know, if you listen to the first two or three albums, all that stuff, but yeah. first two or three albums, I mean, she's as good a songwriter as Benny and Beyond for ABBA. I mean, I think she's yeah. fabulously fabulous, uh, Tracy Ann Campbell. So, you know, just listen out for these things and see what might... I mean, but I'm, don't, if you start me on music, you won't stop no, no, me. I, I know to, you're I a think, big music fan too. I think mainly for our overseas listeners, Pat, John Peel was a legendary DJ who played in the evening mm. and he, I don't want to say alternative music, but he sort of played indie music. Mm. As you say, before you could listen to anything on any internet radio station, you had to be a specific disciple to listen to him yeah. to pick up music that you wouldn't have heard mainstream if you turned on the radio it's, at two exactly. o'clock in the afternoon. And you actually wrote to him, didn't you? To say, yeah. can I meet you? And he gave you a bit of the brush off. And this is typical of you because you were being modest. And your second letter went, actually, I'm a footballer. I'm about to play against your team, Liverpool, this weekend. And then he went, well, why didn't you say that to start <laughs> like, with? Yeah. 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 It's I closest... like that, though, because, you know, no one likes it. My mum said to me when I was little, no one likes a show-off, yeah. Mark. So, and the, yeah, I, the other thing, it's the closest in my entire life I've ever come up across, close <laughs> to saying... Do you know who I am? Yeah, yeah. And it yeah. wasn't like that at all. <laughs> but um, I kind of really did want to meet John. Um, and it was lovely. I did meet him. Uh, we got on incredibly well. So much so that I ended up, you know, going to the studio when he was playing records in the evenings. Never ever mentioned who I was. He'd sometimes say the famous footballers and in a kind of fun way. Yeah. But nobody knew. And I didn't want anybody to know. Because, no, because we had this one thing in common, which is we were both had this real similarity. We lived and worked in an industry where there was a lot of fame and neither had of us had any interest in the fame. We loved the actual game. I loved the game. He loved the music. But we didn't like the other side. I had no interest in the other side of it. Uh, the fame, fortune, whatever. And we had this massively in common. The other, had, the other thing we had in common is I'd probably rather have been in a band and he'd probably rather have been a footballer. Well, yeah. um, so it was a lovely thing to get to know John and he, he was a, a fantastic broadcaster. Made a lot of mistakes and that was part of his charm. Um, but he actually was a really beautiful person. The vast majority of the time I loved, loved, loved being in his company. And I learned a huge amount as well. I learned a lot about broadcasting. I mean, yourself, Mark, I mean, you're talking and you're broadcasting. Don't broadcast the millions broadcast to one person yeah. 
Now, in the best broadcasters, I tell you, I remember John telling me that when I'd never done a broadcast in my life. And that's why John felt so special. You thought he was your best mate talking to you. And I was one of those guys who thought it was his best mate even before I met him. <laughs> so we're talking about this. We're talking Joy Division, New Order, well, Tears for Fears. I have, I have to I go mean, before that. Oh, even before to, that? Bef I have to go, because I'd kind of liked, I mean, I went up to, absolutely, I liked stuff that Peely played before punk. Yeah. So I was a big Genesis fan. And I loved Floyd and obviously Billy and that sort of stuff. But there was this changeover in 77, 78, 79, where you, Joy Division and bands that had come out. There was a lot of great bands coming out of Manchester yes, and a yeah. lot of great bands coming out of Liverpool at the time. Teardrops and... Yeah, oh, Teardrop Explodes. Yeah, Teardrop yeah. Explodes and Echo and Wah, yeah. things like that. But Glasgow had its own brilliant scene as well. And Scotland, certainly. And it was a fabulous period, of, I think, late 70s, early to mid-80s, where the you kind of look back now and it's all high shoulder pads, Duran Duran and yeah, posing. Yeah. In yeah. actual fact, it wasn't. There was a no. fabulous underground interesting scene, which led to a lot of different directions um, and I kind of I loved the scene and, but the one thing I did feel at the time I couldn't it was almost like my football career I couldn't bring myself to look back I just wanted the next thing and the next band and the next band I've kind of never got over that either you know I, I found 10 new bands two weeks ago that I liked 10 new bands in the space of a week that I liked and there's quite a lot coming out of Wales at the moment a really good Welsh scene um, and I'm thinking should I not be over this by now? No, you and shouldn't. And I'm not. I Does this feed into your DJing then? These yeah. new bands, yeah. Well, I try to make it feed into the DJing because I do DJ quite a lot in East London, but basically around the country. When I get the chance, it's, it's difficult because I yeah. do work quite a lot and, you know, obviously football and things. Um, but I, it's something you do for fun and joy. That's another thing. You don't make do my kind of DJing and make a lot of money. But it's great fun. And it's lovely because recently Gets Mendieta started doing quite a bit yes, of it. I read and, that, yeah. And one or two, he... DJs at the place I've been DJing it for 10 years which it's nice that he's come on board as well um, so it's it's a kind of joy and it's it's a great way to meet like-minded people it's fantastic I mean I'm just how long your playlist is if I said you Pat give some of your playlist you go about 5,000 songs yeah it's, you get it's, 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 um, but having said the other thing no, you're, you know like your favourite playlist yeah. if you're going on a long drive or something I've, yeah. to I would love just to get a new album that I haven't mm. heard before for a band I quite like. And uh, it was a new one the other day that I get, get, get every now thinking, they're called New Dad. And I'm thinking, I've heard one song and I'm thinking, I'm going to listen to everything they've ever done in this one song. But I'll, I'll get, you asked me the same question, I'll give you another one yeah. next week, you know. So, you know, it's it's a massive playlist, but I'll be honest with you, if you ask me about chart music, I am an absolute dumbo. I have no idea. And people think I'm acting as well. I mean, I had nothing against Ed Sheeran, but I couldn't tell you an Ed Sheeran song. I really couldn't. But nothing against them, I'm sure it's very nice. So it's kind of, it's very specific. Feeds into what you are, Pat, yeah. you know, as we've, as, as we've said before. And on that subject then, so you come to Chelsea, you're excited by the yeah. music as you are the football. You, you, are, you are different to the average footballer, let's be honest. My question's a fairly straightforward one. Were you bullied at all, do you feel? Um, I think they tried and failed miserably. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, I'd spotted that young. I would say even before my teens, I'd seen bullying around me. I was quite lucky because I was fairly academic at school, but also I could play football. It kind of helps with the popularity yeah. stuff. So if I saw bullying around me, I was the one that would stop it. So I'd always been able to look at the bullies and see the weakness. And again, I was saying I was very kind of old for my age when I was young and I was taking care of, I was, had this kind of taking care of people thing. Um, so by the time I'm, you know, boys club football and things like that and people are trying to wind you up, but I'm thinking, 
do you really think I care? Mm. <laughs> do, do you think anything you say? If you're trying to fit in and you're getting bullied out, that can be a problem. So you have, you have no interest whatsoever of fitting in. There's nothing they can do to you. Uh, apart from possibly physically mm. but if you're willing to stand up for yourself and if you're from these down to Glasgow you'll do that that's the other thing They under, I bet you that either, the, in the dressing room of Chelsea underestimated you didn't they they did when I started yeah. but because you were from the east end of Glasgow you, yeah. there's a confusion there's, a, there's lots of confusions because if you know where someone's coming from you can know how to manipulate them but whatever they try to manipulate it yeah. they would try and some of them were I mean it was one or two players who basically tried to Billy yeah, yeah. But I would basically stand my ground. The rest of them would try to wind you up to find out where your limits were. And then realise very quickly they were getting wound up even more yeah. by, by me. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, I, and I kind of, I love playing with that. You know, I do, and I have always loved playing with that. I remember we game down at West Ham and I'm running down the wing and you're getting dogs abused down there. And they're shouting. Chicken run, is it? Yeah. yeah. And of course, because I read a book once, I must be gay. Yeah. So I'm getting all that abuse and I'm turning around blowing them kisses. It's like, you've got to, you know, you've got to react that way. If you actually are meek towards a bully, you will go under. So I never was. And you stood up for yourself when you really needed to. I love this story. When you renegotiated your contract, <laughs> when Ken Bates probably forgot that you'd come from the East End of yeah, Glasgow and you knew good. how to, you knew how to get the information you needed to get. Yeah, it kind of is a long, it's kind of long involved story. But yeah. in the edited version, I'll, I'll give you an, an extra bit for yourselves listening. So he left me. He tried to bully me into yeah. signing a new contract, and it wasn't enough, and it was rubbish and. Eventually, he was furious. He showed me, I showed him what I wanted. And he, he looked down at it, scrunched out the paper, threw it in the bin and walked out. And he's not even said hello yet. And I'm in this big old office behind this massive mahogany table that he's got. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, he's just tried to bully me there. So I rifled through his drawers and got all the contracts. So I've got every contract and I've got them out and I've got done a mean median and mode of them that night, copied all the numbers. And uh, came in the next day and he said, yeah, have you thought any more of that? And I went, yeah, I want X amount more. And he was just about, if you, nobody's on that. And I said, no, nah, nobody's on that, but that's the average. How can you know you don't know the average? Yeah, I do. I rifled through your drawers last night. <laughs> and he just looked at me like aghast and went, brilliant. <laughs> and gave me it. If you fast forward many years late in my career, I was at Kilmarnock. This guy called Bobby Williamson was the manager. Went on to manage Uganda. Great guy. Came from Easter House, but yeah. a much rougher version than me. Like uh, Great lad, Bobby. Played for Rangers and stuff. And he was the manager. And uh, he got me in his office and he said to me, Pat, we've want to watch you. I can't believe you're coming from Tramney as it was to Kilmarnock. He said, so, I'm so excited about it. I mean, you're, you're an amazing player and you're above the standard. You make us a right good team and you've got the right attitudes and all that. And, he's, and the phone went and he said, I need to go and get that house. And he went and walked outside to take the phone call. And I sat, sat in his office. And then he ran back in and he grabbed me and threw me out of his office physically. Grabbed me and threw me out. I said, what's going on? I heard what you'd done with Ken Bates. Get him off. <laughs> <laughs> I'd forgotten all about it. Yeah, you're brilliant. So it kind of followed me a wee bit. We were laughing as it was actually happening. So, yeah, again, it's that not knowing your own worth, but not in an arrogant way. Yeah. You know, Ken Bates at that point was trying to make me sign a new contract. And I'm thinking, well, if I just walk, which I might, and finish my degree and go back to Glasgow and be very happy with my friends and play football with my mates, I'll be happy. He won't. 
because I'm valuable to him. He's the one that loses. He worries about money. I'm not in any way materialistic. So I knew I was in a good bargaining position. But that 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 was that was your attitude certainly earlier in your career, mm. Chelsea, wasn't it? I might still go back to Glasgow, and in a way that that maybe you did it deliberately took the pressure off your shoulders on match day, didn't it? If it doesn't work out, I'll go back to Glasgow. Teach, I, or I, I think you've kind of got quite a, a bit of a hub of it there yeah, and nailed yeah. it a wee bit there. Uh, that made me a better player because I could relax. And I've always had a feeling if you play or do anything creatively and you do it through fear, you won't be as good. I mean, I'm sitting across this. You, what you do is creative. See, if you walked in here fearful every day, would you be as good? You would be uncertain. If you're relaxed and chatting and you're letting your mind run, it's much better. And I immediately knew that about football when I was a kid, that don't be uptight about it, be relaxed about it. So I didn't want anything to make me worry. So I kind of released that and I partially played a trick in my own mind by doing that. But I also knew that I was willing to walk out if I had to walk out. And that's why I didn't have any, I was different for players and I had a different background for players. And people immediately then took the leap. Well, so you think you're better than them, do you? Well, no, you're just different. Mm. And actually, in fact, it, it took me a very short time to realise I really respected them because they did something I wouldn't have done. They threw all the eggs in one basket. Yeah. They really needed it. Yeah, they needed it. Yeah. So the fear, the antagonism, the anger, all that tension and stress, they had all that. I didn't. And I had an advantage. And okay, it was deliberate and I set it up. But for them, I thought, hey, good on you. So I, they grew, I grew, my respect for them grew as I played with them more. And I think that that completely underlines the conversation you had with David Speedy, with whom you had quite a difficult relationship, yeah. but one, and you played together for Scotland as well as Chelsea. One day you sat down and talked about it and he said to you, didn't you, I will do anything it takes yeah. to provide for my family. Anything. Yeah. Which I, which I am read as well, even actually, if it doesn't particularly suit Chelsea, as long as it suits my family, that is my number one priority. Yeah. And there is a perfectly reasonable morality in there. Yes. A perfectly reasonable morality. I couldn't get that morality because I'd been brought up with my parents and my family saying, yeah. you don't do something that suits you if it hurts the rest of society. You know, you don't set up a Super League if you go and wreck the rest of football. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you just don't do it. And those of us who feel that way, our jaws drop. But we also know other people don't necessarily think that way because they only think of their own small group or family or self or whatever but if it's a family there's a there's a, a decent moral argument there I, I didn't particularly like it and also thought it was small-minded because in the end if you do the best for the team it will end up being better for you and better for the family I thought it was a bigger argument than that and I tried to make that point which uh, completely yeah. fell on yeah. deaf ears but but as you said, you enjoyed the, you enjoyed the debate. At I least did. at least you heard it from him, and then there, there was the, you, mm. you understood where he was coming. The, the from. downside is it took about two and a half, three years to yeah, have that discussion, <laughs> and in the meantime, we did a very fractured uh, relationship, uh, and it got me a wee bit fed up because I just got fed up with getting shouted at, you know, all the time, um, and I I couldn't hide it, and I wasn't I was exactly the opposite personality of that guy, so maybe the closest. I mean, I wouldn't call it bullying because. I can fight back. I can shout back if I want. But I just got bored senseless of everything that was going on. And then when he got the upper hand with the management and made my life even more yeah. difficult again. So it was an interesting thing. And that's one of the things I like about the book that I was able to say to Chelsea fans, a lot of them come to me, and you'll know this yourself, Mark, 
you look back in those days and say that was a great time for me. I loved that little period, particularly if you were a young man or woman at the time. But you think you know what went on? Well, here's not an insider's view. Here is an outsider in the inside giving you a view of what it is, is like. And I'm really happy to be able to say that to these Chelsea fans because I left in the end and they didn't know why. And I left in the end and they got relegated that day and I was leaving to go to PSG, I thought. And they must, I must they, they possibly might have thought, I thought, some of them might have thought, rat off a sinking ship. When in actual fact, I've never been able to tell them up until now. I would have stayed <laughs> if they'd have asked me, but they didn't ask me. They didn't ask Away by Ratcliffe. You won it fairly from Donaghy. And Pat Nevin is onside. Palace is making up the ground. But Pat Nevin has produced a delightful finish. And inside two minutes in the second half, Everton celebrate a goal that was rounded off with real imagination by a player who has that quality in abundance. He just lifted it over the onrushing Jim Layton. It was audacity produced at top speed. 2-0. Talked about David Speed. I want to talk about Paul Cannaville as well. This this was this was a big this was a big moment in in English football, which I remember when his own fans, the Chelsea fans, this is the thing to say, some Chelsea fans uh, racially abused him. And at the next match, you very deliberately at Stamford Bridge walked out with him, you and, and Kerry Dixon. And mm-hmm. as I said, that, as I said in my introduction, you standing up for injustice. And in fact, after he got abused. You actually said how how disgraceful it was, and Chelsea weren't happy with you, were they, for saying that publicly? Yeah. They didn't think it was your place. They didn't think it was. I think because I can't remember anyone had said it before. So I'm this still a kid, you know, twenty, yeah. whatever, and I'm the kind of quiet one. Yeah, I'm standing here in front of a bunch of journalists saying this is not acceptable. I'm disgusted with our fans, you know, which is not what fans no, <laughs> necessarily no, want to hear. And I say, I don't care. You say what you like about me. Um, but I am absolutely disgusted by them. I don't care who it is, if it's home fans, away fans, not interested. That is unacceptable behaviour. And by the way, there was thousands of them there and I cannot accept playing for this and accept this going on. We need to stop this and we need to have a fight against it. And I've ranted and ranted. And of course, to be fair, in those days, there wasn't a press conference that. It was just a bunch of journalists standing out in a horseshoe around yeah. you against a wall at Selhurst Park. I was so angry. But the fortunate thing is I'd, I did manipulate the situation because I'd scored the winner. It was 1-0. Um, I was quite popular. I knew with the Chelsea fans at the time. And I thought, there's a bunch of headlines here for me. What do I do? Do I enjoy this? Nevin scores winner. So what? I couldn't care less. <laughs> but if there was another heading that says, I have a dig at these Chelsea fans or any fans for, for the, the racism and the unacceptable chanting, then that's, definitely worth it so I did I did that and you know in comparison to today I don't know how 
big the headlines were, they wouldn't have been as big because I think the journalists were quite surprised by it because they hadn't. They, really... they weren't. Anti- they wouldn't have been anticipating no, that, and they? they wouldn't have been expecting it. And they kind of thought, "Where's that coming from?" Because it's been in the game for decades, and suddenly some wee Scottish guy shouting about it. Um, but you know, it was, it was interesting, and I thought, "I'm not going to leave it going now." And the next game, I just made sure that Kerry and I, Kerry Dixon and I, made, we walked out beside. Kerry. He kind of, I don't know if Kerry knew I was doing that, but I made sure <laughs> Kerry was doing that. Yeah. And we walked out beside them, and the vast majority of the fans sang Paul's name before ours. And it was just, it was this beautiful moment where I was I was unbelievably moved by it because I had a suspicion that the silent majority didn't feel this way. And it was just the noisy ones. And it was just I, I call them morons, it's a bad fair, but I didn't like their 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 political stance one little bit and still don't. But they were noisy. And you can get that. And to this day, you'll still get it. And people are saying to me, oh, the football fans behaving terribly. I'm like, what? Football fans have been amazing the last wee while. Mm. There's a tiny wee bit of violence with one or two recently. And, and there is some stuff you're seeing online. The vast majority have been brilliant. Well, it's been driven online. You've just said it, hasn't exactly. it? Exactly. It has what, been what, what happened in the 80s... I'm talking about the racial abuse, not the obviously. Yeah. But as you said, there's very little violence. We had the thing with exactly. Manchester United the other day, but frankly, you should have been around in the 80s. It's been <laughs> driven online, hasn't it? It has been. Yeah. And, you know, what we keep on doing is we keep educating. Um, we keep doing it as much as we possibly can. But it, then things happened a wee bit after that, which, I mean, I wasn't in a vanguard of we had a big flag up there shouting, I'm going to be at the forefront of this. But if you ask me about it, or if it comes up, and I will sometimes bring it up myself and say, and if I'm doing an interview with the NME, I'll be talking about it. And if I'm talking about bands, I'll bring, you know, because they were quite political, like the bands at the mm-hmm. time, there was Red Wedge and stuff that I was kind of a bit involved with. So I will bring it up at the time just because I believe in equality for everyone. It's, it's not a complicated thing. Um, and then a while later, the PFA got in touch. Now, do you think we should start our campaign? To which my answer was, what kept you? <laughs> where have you been? Yeah. Well, exactly. And I'm thinking, but they were before everyone else. They were before the FA. They were before anyone. They were there to say, okay, we'll start. And then others took on and it grew. And it's, yeah, it's a big old thing now. It's great. It's a big old thing. That's what we want. But you, you don't stop. You, you still try to make sure that everyone's getting equal chance in this world. The other thing you see in a Chelsea game, particularly if you if you were winning well, John Neal, the manager, would let you go on a mazy run, but you do a dribble for your dad. I, don't, I love this story. That's a long way from Glasgow to come and watch you and he couldn't even watch the whole game because of the trains. Do you know this mad thing? You're asking about this story. I'll explain the story first. So my dad comes down for Glasgow. He works in the railway, so he gets the free tickets down and that. So that's one thing in his favour, but he has to leave at five in the morning. He's been working six days a week. So he's Saturday morning, he's down the train. He's in London by one, two o'clock. I'm, by this point, out warming up, so I don't get to see him. Um, he watches the game and then has to leave five minutes before the end to get the six o'clock train for Houston up to Glasgow. So I never see him. And it's that's a big crowd there. So I'll always look for him back. I'll usually not see him. So we've got this sign where he taught me how to dribble. So every game I will do at least one stupid dribble. I just go in an utter <laughs> mazy for the pure and utter joy of it. And and that was me saying, hi, Dad. And he got it every time and we chatted about it later on the phone and all that sort of stuff. So we did this all through, all through my career, everywhere. I remember, I never mentioned it. And it was only about three or four years ago I was chatting to somebody and, and my dad who's no longer with us, um, they said, oh, you're missing your dad. And I said, yeah, just those times the Maisie Dribbles and I told that story. And the person went, really? And I went, well, yeah, I think that's quite a normal thing to do. 
And then people are thinking, no, that's weird. <laughs> and, I'm going, I, and I just think it's, it's a perfectly normal thing to do. But now that I think about it, yeah, it's probably a bit weird to do. I think it's great, <laughs> it though, great. Well, particularly because you couldn't see him. But he also used to pop in for a glass of whiskey with the manager, didn't he? Yeah, he never told you me that. You didn't know that bit. either, did oh, you? No, he didn't tell me that bit, the creep. Because <laughs> um, my dad was, my man, the manager seemed to know me really well. So I have these different and unusual attitudes that, I mean, really dedicated to playing. I was the only one that stayed down after training and came back every afternoon to do skill stuff and try different things. Um, but I was also the one that was a bit weird and not showing any great interest in watching too much other football, apart from standing on the shelf at Spurs. No, it's good. <laughs> but it was, but that, that's, that was the time you could go and do that. Yeah. So, yeah. Played at Chelsea. Anyway, oh, no. <laughs> so I don't have a, a full beard on. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, exactly. But um, I mean, but my dad, because he was down at one, two o'clock, we were out warming up. I didn't know. He was walking and meeting the manager, John Neal, and Ian McNeil, the assistant manager, who were of his age and absolutely just friends. They sat there having a whiskey before really? the game. And I didn't know this for probably the guts of two years. <laughs> And I was walking by it one day and I've opened it. I thought, I better go and tell the manager and called up for the under 21s. This is like five to two. And I've opened the door. And, what are you doing here, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> My dad's in the manager's. What? And it was the weirdest yeah. thing. And oh, having a whiskey. <laughs> he had inside information on me all the time, the manager. Um back in the it's, it was lovely that you could actually you can you couldn't you just couldn't imagine doing that now, can you? Goodness Unthinkable no. doing that now. I'll be honest, some of the stories I tell now, people say, oh, that's amazing, you know, but weird things happened then. Actually, no, that was thought of unthinkable at the time as well. Yeah, oh, see, it was, <laughs> you know, that was normal. That was unthinkable. It was weird at the time as well. You talk about the under-21s. Go back to where we started when you had to tell your dad that you hadn't been signed by Celtic. He had said mm. to your brothers, I think, or his mm. friends, he will play for Scotland one day. Yeah. So when you did play for Scotland against Romania... This, this is, um, it's funny how much we, we do things with our parents in mm. mind, don't we? After the game, you gave him your shirt, didn't you? But it mm. wasn't some sort of big, you know, touchy-feely, you know, huggy-huggy yeah. these days thing, was it? You just uh, saw uh, it. A manly tap on the shoulder, manly maybe. Shoulder. Um, but with but, a lot unsaid. Yeah, and you didn't need to say it. I mean, that is the joyous thing about, there's nothing wrong with it. I tell my wife I love her every day, yeah. you know, and the kids would do it every day, and it's a brilliant thing to be able to do. We would never have considered that because we didn't Ditto. need to. Yeah. We didn't need to. Because you yeah. did it by, you showed it yeah. by the way you behaved yeah. and the way you acted. And that was plenty as long as you showed that person. I would rather people showed me that than said it and didn't mean it. Right. Yeah. I didn't mean it to that level. But after that game, you know, walking out and having played and it was, and Kenny was playing that day, maybe even in his hundredth cap. I don't know. Anyway, but you know, it was an amazing thing and lots of friends there. And it is a real moment of, and if you play for England, if you play for Scotland, it, it's just a real moment of, right, that's something. You know, I don't care if I get 20 caps, 40 caps, 100 caps, you have represented your country and it's fabulous at the, the main level. And I came out and I had a plastic bag with me, <laughs> just a poly bag, the cap inside it. You have that, Dad. Oh, so it was the cap. It wasn't yeah. the shirt. It was the cap. Oh, the lo shirt. A lovely and, embroidered cap. And the shirt. Oh, lovely. <laughs> lovely. With, with a little gold tassel on yeah. it or something. I mean, to be honest... Yeah. I'm I'm trying to think. Definitely the shirt. Yeah. Definitely the shirt. I'm wondering if the cap may have been later because they sometimes didn't have them embroidered because you used to do the names on them. So you put yeah. the the game and your name on it in the old days. So maybe it was 
it would have been just a shirt, actually. No, but there's so much unsaid in that gesture of you mm. handing over a and, and not even bag with not, a shirt. No big, yeah, you're no, no big words about it or anything. No. Just, I think you better have this done. <laughs> you better have this done. That, oh, that's, that's fantastic. Um, so Chelsea get relegated. You go to mm. Everton, who are, you know, who are of, well, Chelsea well, have been relegated. So they, they, were, they, were, they were bigger than Chelsea in the sense that they were still in the, in, well, we're now first division still, mm-hmm. rather than Premier League. Um, and you play in the FA Cup semi-final in 1989. I'm really struck because afterwards you're interviewed by a man that we, you and I both know extremely well that we work with, Mike Ingham, who was the BBC Radio football correspondent. You've scored the winning goal. You've taken them to the cup final. And he says to you just before you do the interview, Pat, you need to know there's been a tragedy in the other semi-final. Yeah. And you're like... It's, I mean, I've, I've never heard that interview. Um, but trying to come down from the highest you've ever been in your football career, and I have scored the winner. I have got us to the cup final. I'd been bought for a lot of money by Everton, nearly a million quid, which then was half of the highest transfer fee ever. So it's a big old number. And I've scored the winner and I've paid off some of that. And suddenly the elation's everything. It's just brilliant. And then you stand there and with, within five seconds, you're, you've gone down to the, the lowest you've ever been. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gear shift that throws you. And and I don't know what it was like in the interview, but I do remember I asked, answered a couple of questions because Mike felt he had to ask, you, you know, you have this your job. Yeah. You need to ask the football question. Yeah. Well, it was on and Sports Report. You, exactly. know, it was, you had to do it on Sports Report yeah. as its own thing. Yeah. And I, I think it was saying the third question. I don't know, it's a blur. I said, you know, Mike, I don't really think I want to be talking about football just now. And he said, yeah, me neither. And handed back. Yeah. And I think that was the last words of that game. Nothing else was said. And then we just stayed at what had happened at Hillsborough, I believe. Um, I say we, don't let five live already. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I wasn't working for yeah. them. But, um, and it was, another thing happened afterwards. Is, I mean, it's, that was the hardest part of the book to write, to be fair. Um, because a lot of the book, I hope, is kind of quite a lot of fun in it. There's serious topics that are, are you know, attacked. But you, you can't write about what happened there and not give it due credit or consideration and try and write it. And actually, do you know what? Yes, it was hard to, but it just flowed out as well because the passion of it. I actually did cry during writing the piece about um, the fans uh, at the funerals afterwards. You know, and we, a lot of us employers went to a lot of the funerals because, you know, there was so many funerals. Did that feel a bit... Oh, that it was the Liverpool FC disaster. It was obviously no, the Liverpool we City too. disaster. No, we were together. It together. was a, it was totally together. Uh, that was a city. There was it was perfection, and the, it had to be the FA Cup final between Liverpool and Everton. I didn't think it should have taken place anyway, but the fam- families wanted it, and that was most important. And it was a great game, and Liverpool, mm. as I often say, cheated uh, to win the game by bringing on Ian Rush, <laughs> yeah. which is definitely cheating as far as I'm concerned. Togetherness is the key word here. These pictures being beamed all around the world. The United States, to Hungary, to Iraq, to all the countries who normally tune in for the English FA Cup final, but they will all appreciate that this year is different. Did you want, you didn't want to play it initially. On the morning of the FA Cup mm-hmm. final, did you, Pat Nevin, want to play the game? Yeah, no, as soon as you the family. You did by then. Yeah, but yeah. The fa- no, no, the family. If the family say it, that's more important than me. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm 
way down the list of yeah. importances than this. But you, st- you, but okay, you were told to play, but did you want to play? Did yeah. you no, want no, to be no, the, I was the happy. eight-year-old who played at yes. around the park? Yes. But it, no, yeah. but it, did it have that joyous yeah. thing? No, not to the same level. But were we committed to winning? Yes, hundred yeah. percent. We wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't mess about with the memories of anyone. The importance of football by not doing that. And I mean, it was such an emotional day. You know, I bide with me. You'll never walk alone before the game. It was so much, and it was Everton and Liverpool together. And there was so many things that days, and it was a brilliant game. And you know, but I've never watched it. I've never seen it. It was weird. And apparently, I helped set up the second one of. David Silver like passing a vague memory <laughs> of that um, outweighed and all yeah. that sort of stuff to Stuart McCall yeah. yeah Watson heads it forward to Cotty Sharp chances here Nevin and outside him a chance too and Gobala and it's got him Steve McCall was in there and it came with seconds left of the 90 minutes Gobala thought he had that and Stuart Nepal scores the goal that brings Everton level and almost certainly forces extra time. But in the end, um, it was just afterwards. And, you know, be- between the two, what happened at the funerals and us having to see what was happening to Liverpool as a place, it was an extraordinary, weird time, you know. And I think and I was getting married a few weeks later. I mean, it's weird how many things are going on in your life and working with your brain a real madness of it and I did see one thing recently and it was a football focus at the time and I was being interviewed and uh, I didn't know when this interview was and I'd forgotten about it and it came up on YouTube or something that whatever and I watched it and I'm thinking oh lighten up Pat <laughs> God you're, you're more earnest than I thought I'm sitting there with a leather jacket and but tra- well, I was yeah. so quiet and talking with it and it, it took me a bit it was about two weeks later I thought no, it was Hillsborough. Yeah, yeah. That's what it That's was. That's what it was, yeah. And, I, and it took me ages to figure it out. And was I trying to be too, you know, distant? No, I wasn't. I was fed up because of that. So it was, it was writing about that was, yeah, it's many things in the book you, you had to write about, like, you know, the, the paedophilia stuff I talked about. You know, there's a whole section in homophobia. Um, <laughs> I know this doesn't sound very fun. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of fun in there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, writing about that was certainly something I wanted to try and get right. Today's players have all the money. But I wonder, and I've asked a lot of your generation this, including a man mm. who had no idea was your cousin, Terry Butcher. <laughs> I had no, I'm no <laughs> Terry, I that one, is a good it? friend of mine, and I've had many trips with him, and he's a fabulous human being, as I know you would agree. I had no idea you were cousins. I'll tell him, Terry, you never pretended you had any Scots in you. Oh, yeah, hey, I was Celtic, he was Rangers. Yeah, There's yeah, no exactly. way either of us would own, own up to that. I was Scottish, he was English. Yeah. What? <laughs> But he's always said to me, Chris Waddle, you know, people we know very well, I wonder whether you had the fun. They might have the money today, but I wonder if you had the fun. Um, to some degree. Um, I think so. Uh, I've got lots of things. Everyone wants a binary answer to everything, right? Yeah. Is it better now than it was then? In many ways, yes. In many ways, no. It's as simple as that. Um, are there a bit more pressure on now? Some people would say yes. And I would say, well... A lot of the top players, if uh, the pressure is if they don't do well this season, they'll maybe not get a job, but they'll still have 40 million quid in the bank or whatever. It's not yeah. kind of the same position, you know, stress that a lot of our lads had, which if you don't get a job, you can't keep your family. Yeah. You know, so that's stress and pressure, right? So just because there's more cameras there and there's more people around the world looking, nah, that's not more stress, right? So 
that's one thing. On the other hand, I could go out and see a gig. I could go and walk the streets and do anything. I could sometimes go in the tubes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Tottenham had a costume yeah, on the tube once. Yeah, he yes. tried to knife me. Yeah. Um, but these a lot of these guys, that would be quite difficult to do that. I still think you can if you choose your places to go. I suggest have a look at Juan Mata. He lives a quite normal mm. life. So you can do it. But I wouldn't, I don't envy that side. I don't envy anything. Well, you don't envy the fame because you never wanted to be yeah. famous. That's but, the point. And I think that's the thing about being famous, mm. no matter what you do in life. do you? Is that actually what you want? Because if that is what you want, yeah. then you shape your entire life around trying to achieve that goal. Yeah. And, I, and again, I, I, because I don't understand that, I shouldn't dismiss it. Because a lot of people, it's an important thing mm. in their life. Um, and so I don't understand it. I shouldn't. And it kind of seems a bit mad to me. I know, certainly I've worked with people and they've basically bought football clubs because they want to be famous. And I'm saying, you, you really don't want that, mate. You know, that's, that's, that's not a good thing to buy. That's not a good thing to spend your money on. But if you're a multi-millionaire and you've got lots of money, you've got all the houses and wives that you want, you know, maybe you want a wee bit of fame. But it's, it's generally not money well spent a lot of the time. So I didn't want any of that fame. I would say it was two things, which I would, Envy's a strong word, but I wouldn't have minded. The first one is, I wouldn't have minded a flat pitch now and again. That would have been nice. <laughs> one that wasn't, yes. you know, a, a complete mess and you were running yeah. in what was basically a moonscape half of the time. Uh, and maybe the other thing is that there's, there's certain styles at the moment that would have much more suited me. And uh, certainly if you watch, you know, the players like Davis Silva and Mata and that, I mean, I wouldn't have been stuck out in the wing. I'd have been allowed to play a game that was more suited to me. Yeah. But, uh, you know, but there's other things that were, that were really positive. Uh, would I, well, the, the, I can see in your face, the lead on question is, would I want to change? No, I, I would, I'm happy with the time I played. Pat, let's, let's finish with where we are today. And what I, what I mean by that is, you know, I grew up in the 80s watching football. So, you know, I'm spending, my brother-in-law took me to Stamford Bridge. I used to go to Highbury. It would cost me six, seven quid. Now, the game's changed completely. And, mm -hmm. and uh, if you want to be King Canute, then you can be King Canute. Yeah. But let's live in the real world. But what's happened in the last month um, does seem to be very significant with the, with the ESL and the reaction mm -hmm. of the, the, the big six fans are we now in a place where we are going to see some sort of recalibration of football in this country mm. for the better? I hope so. I've been hoping so for a long time. Um, I'm old school enough to think the Premier League, the way it was set up, was part of the problem because they almost did what the European Super League are trying to do with the English clubs, you know, divorce, keep the money and, you know, grow away. Now, there's lots of positives that happen in the Premier League and, you know, in the end it's you know, lots. I could say lots of positives and lots of negatives, but we are, as you say, where we are. The European Super League was. You added on this, this part of it where we didn't want competition, and they were absolutely throwing everybody out, and they hadn't been honest about it. Uh, I was as angry as any fan. Um, the thing is, I wasn't as worried as any fan because <laughs> I have to remember later in my career, I'd been PFA chairman, mm. I'd been chief executive of the club. I'm looking at that thinking. No chance, not a hope. And I was doing a lot of interviews the day it was announced and the day afterwards and everyone's panicking. I'm going, well, it's not going to happen, like, because <laughs> just one of those bricks falls and the whole thing tumbles or crumbles. They haven't bothered to ask anyone. They haven't, two, just two people off the top of my head at the time, I said, you've not asked the players. How dare you? They'll just strike. I was a former chairman of the union. We'll just say get lost. Yeah, yeah. You would have said, as chairman, you would have said just strike. Yes. Yeah. We did. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we yeah. did before the, the Premier League and got what we wanted. Yeah. 
So we would have said, no, no, you want to change this game, you come through us and talk to us first. And then, of course, the other group was the fans. And happily, the fans have stood up and said, no, we're not having that. So I'm delighted that everyone came together and explained to a group of people who live in this rarefied atmosphere that doesn't allow other humans to live in, mm. that, you know, we think quite differently from you and you ain't going to be able to do that. So I'm delighted we are there. Asking where it's going to lead to and the consequences of it is what I find interesting. And it's going to be nuanced and it's going to be complicated because, um, I mean, I'm getting a bit of stick online by Man United fans at the moment because after when it happened, the Man United fans got into Old Trafford. Um, I said, look, you have to understand where this leads just now because, you know, if, if you have to do this, you might have to do it in the next game. And then if you do it, why shouldn't Newcastle fans do exactly the same? Because just it's angry. So if you protest inside the ground and get the game stopped, you might as well cancel the league now because you can't finish the league this year, right? So just understand that's that could be a consequence. Um, but I agree with what you want because I wanted to. Um, and I've got this dog's abuse for saying, how dare you be in behind these people? No, I'm not. Behind, you don't get it. You, you're not actually listening here. And explaining to people where it can go is br- could be brilliant. But in the real politic of what's going on, it's difficult to see because now that everything's calmed down, well, where are you going to get three billion quid to go and buy out the Glazers? Because you might have to do that because mm. it's a business. Yeah. Um, so you're going to have to try and find a way of communicating. And certainly this may have worked. And I hope it has, that you might get some real communication. Do I believe the Glazers will communicate? No, I don't. N- not to any meaningful level. Well, I'm not sure that any of the Americans will to any meaningful no, level. I don't think they? Cause... But, but, but would they, but. This needs to involve the fans as well. This needs to make the fans feel that they are mm. important. And then, but I more than feel they, they should be made important. So yeah. I think as time goes by, I think it's going to be difficult. I'll give you a good analogy. The perfect analogy is, right, um, Chelsea have now twice made mistakes with the fans. They've made two monster mistakes under Roman, right? The first one is they tried to move from Stamford Bridge and go to Barsi. And the fans says, get lost. Even though he's, his largesse has been amazing, the love what he's given to the club, the, the money is incredible and he's, he's not indebted, right? So they love him, but they're saying, no, no, we, it's, still, it's still ours, you know. You're not doing that. And the club tried to push it through, but then backed down when they realised, right? This is the second time it's happened. Now, it's happened twice now. You, you don't do it again. You really don't do it again because you know you're just daft if you try and do it again. You've learned... You know, you've learned twice now. So I actually think you can have an effect on them. And it may well be that some of these clubs are, believe the wrong word, but they're pushed into allowing a level of fan involvement at a board level. I think that would be fantastic because you will not get to run the club in these situations. And 50 plus, 51, 49 would be great. But we've gone so far away Horse from that. Horse has gone. Horse has gone on that. Well gone on that. Right? That's just the business world, right? And I would love it. Hey, I'm a lefty. I would love it to be different, <laughs> but it's not going to happen, right? I also studied business. So I yeah. know it's not going to happen. I'm a realist. So, but if you had the opportunity uh, for the fans to have a reason to say, a chance to have a seat at the table on certain um, more global aspects of the club and the running of the game, I think it's imperative. But it's been imperative for a long time. Now is the time. Now absolutely the time. So I'm pretty excited about it. Um, and I really do hope we don't lose momentum here. And the nice thing is, there's a couple of things happened in football in a number of years. 
we kind of haven't really lost the momentum of the anti-racism stuff and you know the anti-Semitism stuff. And we, we, it's not as fast as one, but we've not lost the momentum. We've not lost the momentum of one of my other loves, women's football. We've not lost it. It's going, it's running. And I'm a big fan of women's football and I always have been. This will not lose momentum here. I'm, I'm liking it. It's good, but let's keep rolling it. I kind of would like to roll it without stopping the games. Now, I, I really like that. Now, if that makes me soft and, oh, you're not a real whatever, so be it. But the game has to go on. The Chelsea fans made Chelsea change their mind in the European Super League by standing on Fulham Road. It didn't go in, it didn't do damage, they no. didn't do that stuff, it didn't stop the game. Um, I'm talking to you just now. Um, this is before Real Madrid played Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> Anything could happen, yeah. and I don't know. So we are in an interesting moment. Uh, you can tell I'm quite excited about it. I'm, I'm excited about it, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I hope the power is used well. Pat Nevin, thank you very much indeed. It's been an absolute pleasure. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.